Welcome to Bandmeet Strings, a podcast exploring the string classroom. I'm Patrick Dandria. And I'm Tiffany O. Ponticelli, and we're both music educators in the California Bay Area. I teach high school string orchestra and symphony orchestra. And I teach middle school band, jazz, and orchestra. We're not experts, but we're here to share and reflect on the challenges, successes, and everything in between in our own classrooms. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, feel free to send us an email at bandmeetsstrings at gmail.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing or if this podcast is helpful to you, it helps us a lot if you write us a review or give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to podcasts. It makes it much easier for us to reach more listeners. Pat, we are back. Happy New Year, Tiffany. Happy New Year. We are checking in to see what's going on. Today is sort of the middle of January, and we are back in the swing of things. Our program had a phenomenal time at Midwest. We were super excited about how our performance went, how uh, the entire process went. We did not get caught in the Chicago storm, so we were all <laughs> um, happy to be home relatively on time. And now that we're back, January and February is a slog for, I think, everyone, teachers, students. I always find this time of year really tough. So. I am looking forward to our upcoming winter concert. I think we've got great rep planned. I'm really actually excited about it. I was doing a quick list of of who we are playing, composers and arrangers, and it looks like Lauren Bernofsky, Kevin Day, Julie Lyon-Lieberman, Adrian Gordon, Roger Zare, Stephen Chin, Ty Fraction. Uh, that was a list of, of living composers. And then Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, some Tchaikovsky, some Albanese. And I think we're just really excited about this range of genres, styles. There's Klezmer, there's Electronica, there's Tchaikovsky. Um, it, it's <laughs> going to be a fun concert. So I think getting uh, myself out of the blues uh, helps by just having rep that I'm excited to work on with kids and that they're excited for too. Um, and then we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, at the end of the episode, but I am planning for Orchestra Olympics 2023, which is a very big deal in my orchestra program. And uh, that helps me get out of the slog too. Love it. How about you, Pat? What are you up to? Well, first of all, congratulations, Tiffany, on Midwest. Thank you. You made it. And from everything I heard, because I sadly did not uh, travel to Chicago this year, it was just a stunning performance. Uh, just a huge congratulations to you and to Sandy and all your kids on it, what, a, what an incredible, incredible accomplishment. So well done. Thank you. You said you have a, a winter concert coming up. Do you do like a January thing? So a great question. Yeah, we um, actually usually do a December thing because of Midwest. We pushed our regular orchestra concert into January uh, because we ended up doing a Bon Voyage concert and a Nutcracker Symphony Orchestra concert. So uh, our string orchestra kids actually haven't performed since fall. So this oh, this cool. upcoming concert is going to be chamber orchestra and string orchestras, and it's in the third week of January. That's awesome. And I, I mean, good for you, I, probably for a lot of reasons, but smart to just like push that <laughs> to after you the got last, last Chicago. Last spring, yeah. us knew we didn't want to do a concert the week before we left the Midwest. <laughs> it's so nice when you can look back and be like, thank you past me for taking care of exactly. me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I am similarly uh, back in the swing of things. I, I have similar feelings about January and February because they kind of feel like, at least for me, uh, a little bit of a dead zone in terms of like performances. Mm -hmm. To be honest, right now, you know, after our first week back, I am loving having just the freedom to teach and feel like there's not something that's right on the horizon we're getting ready for. And yeah. it just has felt really freeing um, in a way that's exciting. I think the way we're getting into fundamentals and technique feels, again, very much more open and, and we can 
explorer, which is awesome. Um, but even in the repertoire, it's fun just to play. Honestly, it's just fun to play fresh rep mm-hmm. after banging away at that winter concert music for so long. So I'm enjoying that. Our December concerts, I thought, went very well. I was really pleased with how the kids performed. I was really, really actually pleased with all of the ensembles, but especially with full orchestra, which is a group that just kind of comes together a few times before the actual performance. And that can be challenging with such a large group, For sure. but they, they performed so well. I, I thought all the kids, the energy from the kids was really palpable um, and exciting. And I, I was totally vibing on that at the concert. So I was really pleased. I listened back to the recordings and so much that I was proud of. I definitely was listening, just hearing a lot of timing stuff um, that I feel like was true in all of the groups. So I think for me, I'm, I'm reflecting on how can I help the kids to play more together in a new space. A lot of that, I think, is that I rely a lot on their listening mm-hmm. at the detriment of their watching. And so I think that's something that even as we've come back this week, I'm just being more demanding of the kids in terms of eye contact and where they're placing their stands and me giving less verbal cues in terms of timing and trying to rely on. So that's a skill I want to try and build. Yep. That specific thing really is also a difference between band and orchestra. The amount of time it takes to physically move your bow is different than the amount of time it takes to push air through, I think. And so I, that, that's that's a band orchestra thing. And also, I think it really is a COVID thing where kids played by themselves in their mm-hmm. own homes for two years and they stopped doing the watching part of things. Yeah, I found that to be true. The other thing with band is like, not in all pieces, but when you have percussion, there is something that... Uh-huh. that, yeah, that can, there's a built-in metronome. Yeah, You're not like, wrong. <laughs> you play a march and you get the boom chick going, everybody else just kind yep. of fits right in the... And um, y- yeah, your job is a little less required. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. It also just being... You know, we talked in past episodes about being in new rehearsal spaces or performance spaces, but like we're in the gym. For sure. And man, the gym... There are sounds from our December concert that are still ringing uh, in that gymnasium. (laughs) (laughs) But all that said, I I was really pleased and uh, I very much enjoyed the break, but I had had a good week being back with the kids. So happy to be back. Great. All right, let's set the stage for our conversation today. Last episode, we continued our discussion about developing control in the bow and the right arm and how we introduce intermediate and advanced bow strokes. Today, we're shifting away from skill development again, and we're going to discuss the topic of assessment in our classes. Now, assessment can be a pretty polarizing topic with many, many strong opinions on how much students should be tested of over-testing or under-testing, especially in arts or elective classes where our students are choosing to be here and they are creating art. Um, We want to encourage that. Today, we're going to speak honestly about our own opinions on assessment. But that said, assessment is something that we all have to do. It's a part of the education process. And we'll try to keep a perspective that assessment can and should be a very valuable tool in our teaching, both for us and for our students. We'll start with discussing our own why for assessment, sharing our past and current mindsets on the purpose in our classes. Then we'll discuss what skills or material we're assessing in our classes. And finally, how we administer these assessments and record grades and share feedback with our students. We are going to share a bit about all of the various assessments that show up in our gradebook, but the primary focus of today will be on the what and how of assessing related to playing assessments, where our kids are actually performing on their instruments and we're giving them feedback on how they play. Before we talk about our grading breakdown and our philosophy, we wanted to share a little bit just about what learning management systems we use and the grading systems that we're using in our school districts, just for some context. Tiffany, what do you use at your school? 
Yeah, so we have been longtime users of Schoology. I think our Schoology contract started prior to my being there, so earlier than 2012. And we have pretty robust use of Schoology throughout our district. Our grading system is pretty traditional, as in letter grades attached to a number score. And we are required to give grades for all secondary grades, including in their arts classes. How about you, Pat? Our actual grading system is this thing called Equitas, yep. uh, which we call Q, and I hate it. It's horrible. Um, and I think that's <laughs> the general consensus. The district is going to change away from that next year, and hopefully we'll find something different. I don't remember what they're moving to, but I, it's not. I, mean, I am familiar with Schoology, which I've, I've used and liked, but I hope it's something that's better. But most of the actual assignments and interactions with the kids don't happen on Q. They happen in Google Classroom. Right. That's where I post my assignments. I don't post grades there, but most of the actual, like how kids are interacting, that's that's where they're living. Oh, that's fascinating. So they have their grades um, separate. Uh, we also have, we have Infinite Campus, which we use to actually post our grades, but mm -hmm. most teachers are keeping their grade book attached to their assignments in Schoology. Do you not keep your, like, do you enter your assignment grades into Q, even though the assignment was posted yes. and maybe submit on Google Classroom. Yes. That's fascinating and challenging for you. Well, do you have to enter in grades to Schoology and then transfer them to Infinite Campus or does... We have a pass-through that does it automatically or we... Yeah, but that's like, it's honestly, it's like a back-end plugin that they, that someone created. It's not supposed to talk to each other. Yeah, that's the only reason I don't use Google Classroom for that reason is it doesn't communicate that way. So I would have to enter grades in twice. So I just put all their grades there. But it is, it's weird because the kids, if they look on cue and they see an assignment, they're like, well, what assignment even was this? Then they have to go back to Google Classroom to check it. It's not ideal. Yeah, that seems really challenging. My reasoning for using the Schoology gradebook, even though it's not the official end gradebook, is because that allows them to see their rubrics and comments within the rubrics within the actual assignment that they had submit to. So it's more student friendly. It seems and it just seems much more valuable for the kids who are actually looking at it. I have <laughs> lots hard. of kids that look on cue and say, why did I get this grade? And then have to look back to find the the, the feedback on, on classroom. In terms of our grading system, we are also on an like A through F system. Mm -hmm. We are required to give grades to all of our students at the secondary level, including in our ensemble classes. That's not true for all of the arts classes. We have like an elective wheel and those students don't get graded. Okay. But for my classes, for band and strings, all my kids get grades. So that's a little bit about what we're looking at and what we're using. I know that varies school to school. Let's share now about our philosophy. I guess I'll talk a little bit about what I've done in the past because I feel like my mindset has really shifted, especially in the last year or two. In the past, for my grading breakdown, I used to have a really heavy emphasis on concert performance, like way too much on concert performance. And I think, to be honest, that came from a fear of students not attending concerts, mm -hmm. which in my current district has never been an issue. But in my previous district was something that I, I felt like I really needed to hold over the kids' heads. As I reflect back on that, I don't think that that really felt correct. But that is what I used to do. We all changed, yeah. Yeah, and most of the other parts of my grade, like classwork assignments and assessments, or a smaller emphasis. So again, that just felt really out of balance with the grade actually representing how the students are doing in my class. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like a lot of that shifted. In terms of the assessments that I gave in the past, they sometimes I would give playing tests on a you know rep, 
Um, I often would give scales because I taught band uh, and that was something that I thought that all kids should do. The rep was kind of like quality control uh, just to see how things were going or to reinforce things that were a little challenging for them. And the scales were a technique check-in. But again, as I look back on it, I think my overall feeling is that I felt like I had to assess the kids. So I created assessments because I had to. Mm -hmm. And that didn't feel really valuable in a lot of ways. When I did the assessments for the kids, I would either do remote recordings where the kids would submit a recording, often video, or I would do individual pullouts where I would have the kids come into my office and they'd play one at a time. The recordings that I did when I did those to actually listen back to those and provide feedback to me required a tremendous amount of time. Mm -hmm. And the feedback process is really removed from what the kids actually did, because sometimes the grade, like I'm listening to those the week following, they actually submitted them. So it's really far away from them even remembering what they did. Obviously, they can listen back to it. It felt really impersonal. So I, I haven't always loved that as the primary way of assessing, but that is what I used to do. And then when I did individual pullouts, which was much more personal and was like right in the room, the impact on instruction time is really significant because if I have 50 kids in a class and each one of them takes three minutes to be assessed, and then there's a transition of every kid going in and out, I mean, it would take sometimes two maybe three days to go through scale assessments. And that's all just lost teaching time. I used to have, and still do have for some assessments, a really, really detailed rubric for all my assessments. And I honestly did that early in my career because I felt like I needed to justify the grade so that when a kid came to ask me, I had a reason, which makes sense. But again, felt very reactive to, I guess, my own fear about getting called out on the assessment. Mm -hmm. uh, I would use that to calculate point totals. And I also would use it so that the kids kind of knew what I was listening for. So when they were preparing, they they knew what to expect in terms of what they were going to get graded on. But I just found the kids never looked back at their rubric stuff, unless their grade was something that they didn't like. And then oftentimes they couldn't find the rubric or they didn't know how to interpret it. And it just felt like a missed opportunity. I didn't have a great distribution system. Uh, it sounds like Schoology has a better way of communicating some of that, but I, I would have to like individually create a rubric that I'd, sometimes I would fill out by hand and give to the kid. I just didn't like it. I guess if I can be honest, like I, I think my fear of assessment in the past has come from a lot of places, including that it's just assessment can be a real pain to put together. Mm -hmm. It requires a ton of setup in order to create the assignment and then communicate the assignment to the kids and then try and set them up for success in some way of giving them some information to be successful in that. And if you don't do that, you know, cause you can just say, I'm gonna give you a playing test and you've got to do this thing. Like it's so broad that it becomes kind of meaningless. And I didn't like that part about it. It takes a lot of time to think about what to assess. And then because of all of the time that's invested in it, if it's not valuable, it just feels like a waste of time. And managing all of the the details of the assignment document and the rubric and entering in the grade, it just it just felt like a lot. So that for me, I had a lot of feelings about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're naming a lot of a lot of the things that many people feel. Yeah, and I think 
my mindset has shifted in the last couple of years, in part because of the return, as I said, in part because of some conversations that are happening at our school site about the value of grading and what the grade should be. And I think my my mindset now is that assessment can be a super, super valuable and really actually helpful to the things that I, I actually already value and, and want to do in my classes. So I feel like that shift has been helpful. I'm excited to talk more about that today. My current grade breakdown for reference is I do 25% of my grade is ensemble skills. That is largely the student's daily classwork of coming to class prepared, being engaged in class, participating in discussion when they need to perform something that they are, are doing that and that they are doing all the things of being a good ensemble member, taking care of the people in the class. 30% of their grade is homework and practice records. Every two weeks, the kids have to turn in a practice record. I have a, a document that they complete that essentially asks them what they practiced and for how long. To be totally honest, we could do a whole episode on practice records alone. <laughs> they are varying degrees of completion. And I have no doubt, like many people, including many teachers, <laughs> that, that there are lots of kids that those practice records are not an accurate representation of what's going on. For sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I asked the parents to sign them. I think for me, I have set an expectation that they should be practicing regularly. And I asked the parents to either be complicit in the their lives or to hold them to an expectation at home. I'm not in their homes, so I don't know. Um, but I do find that the kids, because of those practice records, they talk about practice and they think about practice and they have an understanding that musicians practice. That's a part of being a musician is that you practice. Uh, so I, I actually think that the culture of practice in my program is really positive. I think kids kind of get excited about trying to work hard. And then there are lots of kids that probably don't do the practice and either don't submit something or submit something that's not accurate. And I am totally at peace with that. <laughs> the written work that I do, which is a variety of things, often some kind of response assignment, either to a recording that they've done or a recording that we listen to or a performance uh, reflection on something that we've done or a performance that we get to watch. And I find those very, very valuable. And those come in a variety of formats. Sometimes the students are sharing their feedback with one another. Sometimes they're just doing individual work. 25% of the grade are playing assessments. And we'll talk a lot about those today. And then the last 20%, which is only 20% of the grade, is their performances that they attend. And I do have that as part of my grade book. I know that there are a variety of different outlooks on that and different schools that say you can or can't have that as part of the grade when it's not a part of their school day, but that's what I have. I really want the assessments to be valuable and an opportunity for me to learn about the students' current skill development so I can support them better and get an opportunity to help them if they need it, and for the students to get meaningful feedback on their performance because they need to know if they are or aren't doing the thing, so it helps to guide them on how to improve. The assessments that I'm doing this year are mostly mastery based. So students perform something and they are either given a grade that shows they are at mastery, they are nearing mastery, or they do not have mastery and that's it. In terms of the playing assessment part of that, it's only 25% of their grade. So that's not the majority, but it is significant enough that it, it impacts their grade. I mean, students can be getting a B or a C if they are really struggling on these assessments. What I want those assessments to be is an opportunity where 
I can intervene and they can intervene when they need help. So the point is that if they don't do well on them, that they get to do it again and do better. Mm -hmm. And uh, I offer full credit makeups and retakes on all of my playing assessments. They can do that anytime in the same semester that it's done. Obviously, sooner is better, but it just gives more opportunity for kids to improve. For sure. That was a a lot of information (laughs) that I shared. Sorry. No, I appreciated hearing it. It's interesting. You're right. It's so personal. I think we have so many things about assessment that are similar and then so many things that are actually really different as well. So I I think this episode will be a great way for us just to share what we're doing. There's lots of what you said that really resonates with me. I love the idea of assessments being valuable for students to learn what they're doing. Right. I think I think for me, assessment is purely about the feedback. I could not care less about the grade. I give the grade because I have to. And I try to really make that clear to students as well. So I really love that that's an emphasis of yours as well. In general, like I just said, I really try to steer away from grades as much as possible. We are a school that cares a lot about grades. We care a lot about numbers. Students in the student culture care a lot about how well they did on what test and they're gonna publicly talk about it in a way that I think is unhealthy. My goal for orchestra is to make that so it does, it's a class where they don't have to worry about the number as much. And instead, we're working on individual growth and we're comparing that individual growth, comparing um, using learning targets in a standards-based grading program. So we are, um, although we're on Schoology, which is not designed for standards-based grading, we've sort of hacked our system to allow us to use rubrics for everything um, with learning targets that are published to students and parents. And so every assessment, anything they're assessed on from ensemble skills to concert to um, like a technical playing test, we are pulling learning targets from this list to make up the rubric for that event. You also talked a lot about how overwhelming assessment can be for the teacher. I have absolutely um, curated systems that make assessment easier for me. I think that that's the only way this is sustainable. You could say, oh, the best way for my kids to learn would be for them to submit a video every week and for me to write individualized feedback for all of them every week. That's probably true. That would be helpful for them. It is also untenable for when you have 250 students and it, it's not it's not worth it, in my opinion. Yes. So I think over time, I have I have had many different versions of assessment and many different versions of getting feedback to kids. My current system, I feel pretty good about in terms of realistically how uh, <laughs> I can manage things. <laughs> um, I will get to my category breakdown and whatnot, but I just wanted to name two more things. One of which um, I have I have in the past used practice records, practice charts. I have not done them in a long time. Part of the reason is what you alluded to, which is even with a parent signature, parents are very willing to lie for their kids, like no problem whatsoever. <laughs> and the the number of minutes thing, I found less and less useful. I did pivot in middle school at some point to a practice record that only tells me about the practice strategies you used. And then technically you could write down the number of minutes and I would technically care, but I didn't grade that part of things. And so we, cause we would spend a lot of time talking about how to practice. Mm-hmm. They had this chart of practice strategies they would need to talk about in these measures. I use this practice strategy and why, and that would be the thing that I would turn in. Because that's really the core of what I care about, right? And um, for me, at least, and the community that I work with, I did not feel that the practice record was useful. And then a little bit also about my progress checks and playing tests before I go into the categories. One way that I was making it more manageable for myself was that I was doing um, middle school progress checks in front of the class during class time. So mean, I know. And so we have spent a lot of time establishing this culture of like, my goal is for everyone to feel comfortable performing for each other. Realistically, that might not be the case. So I'm going to ask everyone to try their best to do it. 
on the day of a test, they were always welcome to come in at lunch and play it for me again, just for me. I would take the higher of those two scores. There were certain kids that we would make deals and we would do their test in private and and any any kid with IEPs or other other situations that would be fine. Yes. But what that meant was then I was spending 45 minutes going through the room of hearing everyone play and establishing a culture where they would feel more comfortable doing so. I realize that this is not for everyone. What I am doing is mean. I try not to cold call kids and what I'm doing is forcing them to be cold called. And like I, I, it's not for everyone. I think that it worked in the culture of my group. Over time, and especially after COVID also, we started offering the opportunity to pre-record any playing tests um, if you wanted to. And then whoever hadn't recorded by the time of the test we would play live. And so kids could actually choose if they wanted to re-record and be able to do it a hundred times and submit their best one, they could do that. If they didn't want to spend the time at home doing it, knowing they could play it in class, that's fine too. The only thing about that is for equity, we would offer opportunities for anyone who couldn't record at home to record during the school day. So those are those are little ways that we've tried to make it more manageable for, for ourselves. For middle school, I was looking at a formal individual progress check about once a month. And then an informal group progress check at least every two weeks, if not every week. That would that looks more like you and your stand partner or your stand partner and another stand, like two stands together are playing something informally during class. And I am calling that assessment because it is. It yep. helps me, it helps me know who I need to check in with one-on-one, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then for high school, which is what I currently teach, we are now in the format where we have many, many informal group progress checks. Um, and then from there, individual as needed. So students know like, hey, tomorrow I'm going to hear all the seconds play this by stand. And then they know that if they can't play it by stand, I'm going to end up having to hear them individually. So like they collectively as a group want to practice it so that they don't have to such, it's like a teamwork, um, trauma bonding exercise, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and we have far fewer formal progress checks. Um, but we do have ways to hold students accountable. So what I want to do is avoid this, like I have a test in orchestra feeling, this like feeling of dread about coming to orchestra. And I'm talking about high school and particularly my very academics focused high school students that I have in my class. I think avoiding associating orchestra with dread, which they already feel with everything else, I think helps the health of our program overall. That being said, I do hear them all individually play. We do a formal seating audition in high school, so we will hear them all at that point. We usually will hear them again in the second semester as well. That means that I am not hearing them individually nearly as much as many other orchestra teachers. And it's working for us here. Are there students that I could spend more one-on-one -on -one time with? Yes, and we end up pulling those during flex or during any of our remedial times. Our grading categories, we only have three. We actually spend 60% of our grading on ensemble skills, which is what you would call essentially rehearsal participation, if you will. Um, we have a detailed ensemble skills rubric that includes active rehearsal engagement, respect and attention for peers and teachers, materials, routines, and then student preparation and practice. Those five rubric categories are assessed every two weeks. So they'll receive an in-class ensemble skills grade. And then the specific instances are cataloged. So like repeated missing materials on the 12th of January will be listed in their rubric if they can see that any of their grades um, were lower than expected. I should preface this also by saying that in a standards-based grading system, we are using rubrics um, with four columns and three of the four is a passing grade, four is it, four is exceeding. Mm -hmm. um, so I mentioned earlier this like Schoology hacking, obviously that comes out to be 75% on Schoology. And so we have the grades weighted differently. So uh, what looks like 75% is actually an A in lots of ways. Okay. 25% of our grading category is actually concerts and playing tests or progress checks. We have a concert skills rubric that includes things like concert attendance, punctuality, and materials, concert etiquette, both as a performer, as an audience member, 
concert presentation, including their stage presence and concert reflection. So any of those reflections, we will pull those categories as needed for each concert. And then we have a technical skills rubric, which is what we're focusing on today. That includes all the things like posture, position, tone, pitch, rhythm, uh, bowing, shifting, blend, balance, dynamics, musical style, or vibrato. The way that it works with these learning targets is that we're then able to make a custom rubric for each playing test. So I have all of these categories to work with. If my playing test I know is going to be something that really involves like shifting specifically, I'm going to pull that category. I want to also make sure that pitch and rhythm and tone are not affected by that or posture and position, but I won't be assessing vibrato and necessarily blended balance on that same test. Mm -hmm. So it, this allows us to sort of custom make rubrics for, for each test um, as we see fit. And then the best part is that these learning targets can be tracked on our learning management system over time. So like they can see, oh, in the beginning of the year, I was getting mostly twos on pitch accuracy, and now I'm getting mostly threes. The idea behind pulling these categories is to be able to look at the student holistically, and they should be able to tell you, here are my areas of growth over the semester, and here are the things I need to continue to work on. That to me feels wildly more valuable than I got 17 out of 20 with no other information on how we got 17 out of 20. Yeah. And so I think my my whole goal, and it's taken a long time to get to this point. I, I just spent a long time doing many other things. Um, the point of this is that the kid who spends their whole day being, what'd you get, what'd you get, what'd you get on your math test should be able to say, oh, I want to keep working on my shift between third and fifth position on this part of the thing. And I care much more about that. Realistically, almost every kid gets an A in orchestra. <laughs> I think um, that I, again, don't want it to be a point of stress. The only kids who are not um, getting an A, if they didn't complete any of their progress checks, or if for some reason they didn't go to a concert without communication and some of those things. So we do hold students accountable for that part of things. Um, like you, we also allow makeups pretty much any time with a few exceptions on time sensitive items. The last 15% of our grading category is just written work. That's anything from concert reflections or small ensemble group reviews to literally turning in permission slips, which I also think is an important part of being an ensemble. <laughs> of note, and then I'll stop talking. Uh, we also have rubrics for music literacy, history, creation with learning targets that we pull as needed. So that's everything from like rhythm and note reading or time and key signature ID to relating to history and context for musical ideas. There also are rubric categories for composing and improvising. All of these align with the national standards for music so that we have ways that we can assess those things. Realistically, we don't assess those nearly as much as we assess the other categories I've talked about. And then also, because this learning targets document it sort of uh, guides the principles of our ensembles, we do have an ungraded community and SEL, social emotional learning, learning targets that just category, just so we can sort of still guide our curriculum, really. That includes things like community engagement, inclusion, grit and resilience, leadership, connectedness, and musical diversity. These are all tenets of our program that we use as reference. Those are ungraded, but they are still technically in our learning targets and rubrics. Okay, that's my overview. <laughs> that was a lot of information. <laughs> it's such a huge topic. So it's, it's really like, there's so much to talk about here. And I yeah, just really appreciating so much of what you're saying and, uh, and just getting ideas for myself. I love how comprehensive I think your view of this is. It feels like your grading is touching on a lot of the all of the areas of being a musician in your program, which obviously includes the playing part, but also like I, lo I love that you're considering all the SEL portions of this and just of being a member of an ensemble of what it means to just to, to uphold your commitment to the people that you're in a in the room with and, and sharing the music making. 
I also love that your assessments across the year, it sounds like you're talking about these learning targets, all of the assessments, even though they're probably separate from one another, feel like, again, you're connecting to the holistic growth of this musician and that person, which I think is really, really cool. I think I could I could be thinking more holistically, I think, about all of these pieces so that the kids can look and say, yeah, like, what are my strengths and weaknesses right now as a musician? Big picture. For me, if a student doesn't have an answer to what can you be doing better, then the assessment has failed, right? Because if all they know is I got 16 out of 20, that doesn't tell them anything. So I think the point of being so specific with the rubrics is so that they can point to specific skills, specific measure numbers, even within the gradebook comment that tell them, hey, here's where I needed to work on this thing. Yeah. I like your view on practice records. I think that what I want out of it is the thing that you're talking about in terms of the strategies part of it, because teaching the kids how to practice. I had started creating a, a unit of how to practice this year, and I feel like that needs to be fleshed out even further. But I think that I, if I were connecting it more to the actual practice record of the skills that they're using, that would be most helpful for them. Because I think the kids... Give, giving them um, like a smorgasbord of here's all the things you can do mm -hmm. and having them just identify those things, I think would be really valuable because it, if they have to just think from the ground floor of like, what did I do? That That's a big lift for them. But if they kind of have, here's all the things that I can choose from, here's the one I chose yep. and here's how it works, um, that seems really effective. So what you're describing is is my practice skills unit, which actually we could do an episode on. I think the idea is that if, if they have an idea of even a strategy they want to use, even if they aren't sure how to apply it yet, that could be one way to go. Or you could say, hey, I need you to practice these 24 bars and I, I want you to look at this menu of, of options and you come back and tell me what did you choose and why? And then also reflecting on what was effective Yes. in this process that I'm talking about. I was spending class time on that, right? So we're spending class time. We're filling out this thing saying, hey, I know I want to do this. I'm going to talk with my stand partner about which strategy we think will be useful. And I'm giving them class time when they come back to be like, hey, how is this for you? Did it make sense? Because I think that to me feels much more valuable than my mom signed off 60 minutes. I don't mean to sound disparaging about that. I understand there are um, there are students who are really motivated by making sure that they have followed the rules and done that. And it works for many people in many programs. It's just not where I am. Yeah, I, I think the practice, again, we could talk more about it. I, my mindset has gone back and forth. When I taught at Amador, which is the feed, you know, my feed into that program, mm -hmm. we didn't do practice records. Uh, it didn't feel necessary. And I think at the middle school level, I did them in part because of the previous director, um, Paul used to do them with the kids, totally. and in part because I felt like, well, the kids, the kids at the high school learned how to practice somewhere. And I, I think I'm where they must be learning. It. So I, <laughs> that's why I was like, I, they should be learning how to practice somewhere. And I think that this is where it is because, um, no, you're, you're actually reminding me also, I, I teach only high school now after 10 years of middle school. And I specifically don't talk about practice strategy nearly as much as I should in high school. Like in high school, they need those reminders. Yeah. They need all that. And for some of them, it is new information. I should be talking about that more than I am. The last thing I was thinking about is just it, like your, your rubrics also feel very comprehensive that everything has all these categories. And it sounds like through your learning management system that the kids are just able to access that feedback so easily, which is so valuable. I, I definitely am feeling like I am still trying to find a way to marry the learning management system piece with the feedback piece. I guess my, my question to you is, do you find those rubrics in terms of the workload piece? Because 
Yeah, I think there was a point in my career where I didn't mind, where I guess I was willing to take a Saturday or Sunday or five days of the week and just say, I'm going to take three or four hours to listen to all these things and try. It just took a lot of time. How do you find the the rubric completion when you're doing those, either any of those, those categories, the playing assessment piece, but even just the ensemble skills where you're grading the kids every two weeks. Thank you for asking that. I didn't fully close the loop. When I was talking about doing progress checks in person, I am grading them in person and clicking their rubric categories in person. That allows me, and I'm, mm-hmm. I mean, this is also a like young teacher's advantage where I, I am a fast enough typer that I am typing pretty comprehensive comments within the time that they're playing their test. And I I do not revisit that test again, unless I need to. Um, And so that is the way I'm handling that. For um, in-class ensemble skills, to be honest, that one is a slog, Um, but almost every kid is is achieving full full credit on those. So what it ends up being is a lot of clicking and a lot of things. What we end up doing is like anyone who's not getting full credit will flag those and and mark those in and then um, just avoid them as we go. It's not a perfect system, but that at least is giving them um, a data point for the for the two week period, and also we are required by our school and district to be giving a grade update within that two week period. Okay. So it it is giving them an idea of, hey, um, here's where you're doing. Nearly every kid is getting full credit, so that part is kind of annoying. Um, and then for any pre recorded ones, it is it's some time. I'm talking about it very casually, but we actually set up a lot of background information on, hey, when you're recording your test, here are the things I need to be able to see. If I can't see them, you're going to play it for me in class. And then we have, um, they know, most of them now know the formula of what they need to say, what they're doing. And also that if I can't see both hands or the angle is wrong, that they're going to have to redo it anyway. So we, we set up a lot of things that make it so we generally speaking, I will watch it once, type the comments during the time that I'm watching it. And that's, uh, yeah. And we'll talk about this more, I think, with the next topic, but also keeping your progress check short. That's going to be a game changer. You do not need to hear three minutes of every kid playing. In fact, you don't have time for that. Or if you do, uh, you are doing something different with your weekends than me. I have not created a practice test during a weekend in a long time. And I have set up the system to be that way. It's not, it's not perfect, but it is, uh, I think, realistic. I, I so I'd like amen to keep it short. That was one of the biggest things I've changed this year. And it is like a game changer for just the the manageability of being able to do it. And I still get, I, I don't know, I, I feel like I get as much information as I got when I had to listen to three minutes of material as I get in 10 seconds. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've, I've done that before where I've, my test way too long. Um, I meant to say one more thing also, prior to using this rubric system within my learning management system, I didn't always do this. Um, I actually was using a Google form or similar that only I was typing in to give their grades. And then I was exporting that data and using mail merge to be able to give a sheet of feedback to each. That's what I was doing prior to this, which I think could still totally work. It sounds a little bit complicated, but really what it is, is you're, you're giving comments to kids on paper. What I would do in that case is I'll, I would also write all the comments on the top and then I wouldn't write the total score. I would give them the score for each category and then they had to add it up to find out their number. That stops a lot of kids from just being like, oh, I got 16 out of 20 and then throwing the paper away. One other thing is that for sixth graders um, or people who are going through my testing system for the first time, in order to truly de-emphasize the grade, I would often make them do a Google form loop back. So after their first assessment, I would write in all their comments and then actually I would make them fill out a Google form 
that says what my comments were so that I, they can prove to me that they know where to go look for them in the rubric and they didn't just glance at the number and leave. So they would actually have to literally physically copy paste the thing back to me. I would spend one short sixth grade class period on that because it's worth it to me to know that they at least have an idea of where to find it. And then that I think also helps to emphasize to them, hey, I care about the word feedback and I want you to tell me what you can do. And then they would also then reflect on their test that way, which is a useful skill. As much as possible, you can hear the central theme of what I'm doing is I'm really trying to decentralize the importance of the grade. I do not care about your grade. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's more the information that's connected to and the grade is a, a byproduct exactly. of the feedback combined with this system that we're forced to work in. I'll talk more about this, but the grading piece of how I provide feedback is through the Google Sheet mail merge thing. I'll talk a little bit more about that. It is oh, cool. Okay. totally doable um, and less complicated than I think I thought before I did. I got a little help along the way. Um, and you were talking about just the assessment method of, of doing when you're doing things live and in person. I, I do almost all of my assessments now in person in front of the class. Yes. Um, I. <laughs> And I, it's funny, I, I don't disagree with you that like there's some of that that feels mean for the kids because they are having to do it publicly. But I think in my program, the culture of our program is that every single student needs to be successful for the whole group to be successful. And it's our job to ensure that we are all successful. As a part of that, my kids are playing individually regularly as just part of our instruction. I think part of the reason that I chose that model this year was because it fit more into what I'm doing yeah. on a regular basis. I would say my kids don't go more than two weeks without being heard individually in class. Mm -hmm. And again, what that means isn't cold calling of so-and-so play measure 16, let's see if you can do it. But we're working on this concept together. Now let's hear everybody do it and see what differences there are. That's just a part of our exploration in class. Love it. So when we do it as part of the assessment, it feels like it's just connected to what we're doing regularly. I also, um, you, you shared this, pr provide other opportunities for a variety of different types of kids. Certainly students that are on IEPs or 504s, um, but there's some kids that are just they are just terrified to do that for a grade in front of the other kids. Mm -hmm. And I want to give them another avenue to do that. Doesn't mean that they don't play individually in class. They do, but they also have the opportunity to come in during lunch or after school or during, we, we have a flex period where they can come and play for me and they feel more comfortable. And it, I'm fine with that because that serves that kid. I think that's exactly what it is. Is The reason why it feels mean is because uh, the thing that flags for me is diverse learners, yes. right? So like, I think uh, I want to make sure that I'm helping to serve that. But I also, for kids who are able to play for everyone without um, an incredible like takeover of their nervous system, I do want to encourage them to do so because the, like our goal is to be able to play for others. I don't know. It, it's conflicting. There are people who will listen to this who will feel like that's like too super inappropriate. And I, I understand yeah. that thought as I will. But you're you're talking about a culture that's been established in your program. So like yeah. I I feel the same way. I think it totally depends on on the culture of your program, which is a, a reflection of your community you're teaching in and of you. And it, that works for me in my classroom because I think it's what my classroom is already. And the kids weren't there wasn't this huge culture shock of oh my gosh, we have to do this thing in front of everyone that I don't even want to be in this class. That's a totally different experience. It's like, well, that's what we were already doing. And now we just have to do it for a grade. And I always try and tell the kids, like, if it doesn't go well for you, you just do it again for me. And you'll, my goal is that everybody gets a hundred. Exactly. The, the point is, is that we're all at mastery. Right. Um, and if it didn't happen for you today, we'll give you another opportunity and I can help you. Totally.
All right, let's move into discussing the what of what we're actually assessing with our classes. Uh, Tiffany, when you're thinking of what skills or tasks that you're giving to your kids, what, how do you approach that? Yeah, so zooming in on sort of the technical skills portion of things, um, we usually are assessing kids on some combination of specific technique development and then always, my tests always include something from the repertoire. Ideally, in an ideal world, your rep is directly highlighting your direct, your desired technique development, but some combination of those things fits well. So like an example of a very common sixth grade or sorry, seventh and eighth grade test I would have had would be like, hey, in high tech for strings, page 26, first exercises A and B, which are about shifting. You're going to play A and B with no repeats, and then you're going to play eight bars of this piece that uses that exact same shift. So that would be a perfect assessment to me that would show, hey, I understand how to do it. Um, and then also I can use it in context. Or maybe we have been working on spiccato bowing, and then so the test is only a, a passage of music with that spiccato. Or depending on time, um, it might be a scale that we've been working on with that spiccato plus a passage for music. My assessments always have something from the rep. Students all have access to the rubric on Schoology before the test, and it's discussed ad nauseum. They should actually be able to name back to me all the categories that they're being graded on for each test. And when they're preparing for the progress check, the students will play it in class. I will uh, project the rubric and they will give themselves a grade in each category. They will hear their stand partner play. They'll give them a grade for each category. It's not like a, a joke or a mean thing. It's like just genuinely you want your stand partner to succeed. And then I will play a test for them and then they will give me a grade for each category. The idea is like it should not be ambiguous. Why did I get 15 out of 20? The goal is that it, they should know, hey, for this category, I want to get better on this thing. And it should be, I like removing any mystery of how they got that grade. What about you? I really appreciate hearing that. I love that you are pairing the fundamental skill with the repertoire piece of it. I think that's like this perfect marriage of what do you need to understand at a rudimentary level? And then can you transfer that to the actual repertoire itself? And I also love that you are using the rubric as part of the preparation process. I think that was something as a younger teacher assessment, the, the idea of assessment to me was not directly connected to instruction, which seems so ridiculous, but I love that you are using instruction to build these skills. And then the assessment is just a check-in to see how those skills were built and that you're giving the kids tools in the activities that you're doing along the way to help them see how they're doing with that. And I think the partner work is Wonderful. I, I certainly do that in my classes. For me, I this year, I'm giving assessments roughly three a quarter. So I'm giving assessments, I'd say like about once a month ish, um, every three to four weeks. That's great. And I, I, the way I structured it this year, which is a little flexible, is that each quarter I'm giving one assessment that is on a fundamental, one assessment that is on a more technique focused kind of skill. And then one thing that is from the repertoire. Um, I, I'm really inspired in hearing that you're connecting the repertoire to all of the things that I think that's really cool. Just like we talked about earlier, these are really, really short tasks. I'm not asking for a lot of material because I'm doing them in class, um, live in person. I want to be able to do that in a class period. And I want it to feel succinct enough that they just not excess. I would say that most of the assessments I'm giving are between four and 16 counts at a not fast speed. I mean, Oh, I love that. That's great. It's really, 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 really quick. Yeah. Um, the fundamental skills are usually like some really rudimentary skill concept. Oftentimes in my string classes, it's something that's 
bowing related or right arm related, like I'll have them just play on an open string Mississippi stop stop or the longbow challenge that you've talked about, or we'll just do spiccato on an open string or uh, maybe maybe we'll do that on a finger pattern, but it's it's mostly right arm focused and something that they can apply to large portions of their music making, similar to how you discussed that transfer into the repertoire. The technique stuff that I'm doing is usually something that's a little more left-hand related, scales, finger pattern, shifting exercises, arpeggios. I've done some literacy and rhythm reading stuff this year to make sure that the kids are able to, to do some level of quote unquote sight reading. I mean, it is something that we've prepared, but that they're able to interpret those rhythms correctly. Those are the kind of technique stuff I've done. And then the repertoire excerpt, I did do one assessment this year where I had the students perform a long segment um, in a recording. Like it was maybe a minute and a half or so, depending on the instrument. And what I found is that that brought back a lot of trauma of the like, I have to now sit through all of these things yep. and the kids are not really getting the value there. So what, I, what I've done when I've done that is I've just done it as completion based and I use it more as like, here's a targeted practice assignment for you. Like this is a thing that I want you to get better at and you're going to have to submit a recording to show that you've worked on it more than it is me giving them the feedback part. So I, I haven't loved that. What I did love is giving them a large segment that they need to come prepared with in class and then telling them the day of the assessment, here are the specific measures of that segment that you're gonna play. And again, that's like- Great call out, two, yeah. Two to four, two to four so measures. I might, yeah, I might, I might give them, you know, 32, 48 measures, uh -huh. but I'm only gonna ask for two to four of those in class because I don't need to hear all of that. If they can play the two to four measures and that's the thing I wanna target, it's usually pretty representative. I'm interrupting here, but I, I give them the whole P, I tell them, hey, we're gonna have a progress check on this test. You with your stand partner, use your smart skills. What do you think I care about? What do you think I want to hear? That's like assessing a whole different other thing. And then in reality, I don't tell them what they're actually playing until the day of. But yeah, same thing. Yeah, and I, I found that was really effective because the kids come prepared with what they need to. And I only need to listen to a portion of it. Um, similar to you, the preparation for me is really, really important. I want to feel like the kids are set up to be successful. I don't want it to, to me, the assessments are not a gotcha of, oh, did you actually do the thing you were supposed to do? I think that there's a variety of ways you can do that with me doing some modeling, giving them some check-ins to see, like, are you meeting the those rubric targets? Doing small groups where we can identify differences between the groups and that just kind of highlights areas of growth where we're not matching and then lots of versions of partner work where the kids are listening to one another and giving each other feedback that again is specific to those those rubric criterion sounds good let's move into the how um, because as we've talked about one of the challenges in our classes is like when we do assessment if we're going to be assessing students on a small group or ideally individual level it takes a lot of time we're not having the kids all sit there working simultaneously on something. They have to be assessed individually. The model that I've shifted to that I talked about is individual assessment that happens live in class. The way I set it up for them is I create one Google document for each assessment, but I have all of my different class periods. because I teach six different classes. They all have a different assessment. And I, I do keep the assessments for my classes all in the same timeline. It just helps me manage like this is the assessment day for all the things. Love it. Me too. But I didn't want to have I didn't want to have six different documents it just felt too hard for me so i do one document and on that document is the criterion and the task for every single class period you just have to find your class 
the students are given a skill to perform. So an example is um, like I had my sixth graders in the first quarter perform the open escalator pattern, which is a finger pattern I've talked about in previous episodes. And they do that on the Mississippi stop, stop Boeing dot, 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 at 70 beats per minute. So that that's the specificity of the skill. I give them three criterion that that's kind of my rubric, but the rubric is mastery based. So they either meet the criterion or they don't meet it. And an example is on that open escalator pattern. Um, one of the things would be that they use accurate finger patterns, like they're, they're putting the right fingers down. Another would be that they are playing with accurate intonation, that when the fingers are down, they're in the right place. And the last one would be that the rhythm is accurate and even. So those would be three criterion for mastery on that task. And then in terms of the grading, it's either they did it or they didn't. So if they may, if they meet the criterion, yes. And if they don't meet it, no. If they meet all three of those things, I call that mastery and they get 100%. If they meet two out of those three things, so let's say on that open escalator pattern, they play the accurate finger patterns and their bowing pattern is accurate and even so the rhythm is clear but the intonation is not accurate that's a two out of three and i call that near mastery which i give them an 80 percent and the reason i chose 80 percent was that to me felt like a solid passing grade of a b minus but for many students a low enough grade where it felt like I want to improve this. Mm -hmm. And then if they only get one of those three criterion or they don't meet any of them, it's a zero. So they only get three grades on their playing assessments. They get a hundred, they get an 80 if it's near mastery or they get a zero for no mastery. And that's how I, that's how I handle it. For the grade book, I use a Google sheet. I just put all the kids' names down. I create a performance order for the kids and the performance order is just like down the rows. I just go all the way, you know, snaking through the ensemble. And that's what we do on a pretty regular basis when we're doing our individual playing as part of instruction. So the kids are used to it and I just, you know, number each of the kids and then sort them by number so that when I'm entering the grades, they're already in the order they're going to perform in. And then I have three columns for each of the three criterion that are there. And the column either gets a check or no check, and that shows that they did or didn't. And then I have a little formula in another column that takes those three criterion and generates the grade of, of what they're going to get, either that 100% mastery, 80% near mastery, or zero for no mastery. And then in terms of the execution of the assessment, I turn on the metronome at whatever tempo I told them they were going to play. And then each kid plays, and then there's four beats of rest in between each student. And that gives me enough time to check the boxes that I need to check for them. And then we just move on to the next kid. Can I ask a question actually about the no mastery? Yeah, go ahead. The thing, this is a classic like grading across all academics question, but like what, um, how did you come about with the 0% for no mastery? The question being like, is and this is a classic thing where we have a grading system where 0% is an F and 50% is an F. And so which which version of this, if they did do the test, but um, are not showing any mastery in, in your three categories, how did you decide that that's 0%? It's not a, it's not a pushback. I just like, I want to know if, if how you came about that. And also if parents and families feel good about it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 um, Oh, I just decided on it. It's not like there was a, I didn't have a, a, a model that I was trying to copy there. I think if I reflect on it and I don't mind the pushback at all, I wanted to show the students, you didn't do the thing. Uh -huh. 
No, I get that. And to me, you didn't do the thing. Isn't like, isn't that you did it halfway? 50%, I think in my mind is, well, I did, I did half of what I was supposed to do. Yeah. And I think what I wanted to show is you're just, you're not doing it right now and that's okay. And I have not gotten any pushback from students or parents yet. That's not to say that that won't happen. Yeah. Um, I could see that happening for students to say, well, how did my kid literally get no credit on the thing? But I'm also clear with the students that the approach to these assessments is mastery based. So when you're when you're performing, you're just showing do you have mastery or not, not are where are you on that spectrum? Right. With, the, I guess, the exception of near mastery. And I'll talk about this with the feedback side. Students that receive a zero will have an immediate follow up where they have to have to get support to help them. I think for me, the zero was it, it's a red flag for the student and for me of you need some help. So I'm going to help you. I don't really have students that stick with those zeros. Yeah. I bring it up because I think what what you're describing is where we many, where many music educators are trapped between um, wanting to give something closer to standards, standards based grading feedback and the percentages that we have to submit on these scores, right? So what you did and you explained it really well is like I made up these numbers because I think that's what it reflects. Um, but I think what we're trying to do is 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 assess in a completely different way. And I think I, I just want to flag that, like, if you listener are feeling confused about how you can you can give uh, meaningful feedback while also fitting into your school's rules on on getting number grades, this is like an exact reason or an exact example of how challenging it is. I, I don't think any answer is right or wrong. I love all the things you're saying about how you're setting up this has a red flag and that means that we're going to check in one-on-one and you're not going to end up with that zero percent. Yeah. But um, I just, I, I think, I think we have to find ways to fit into our school's grading systems. And I'm just flagging that. I, I think so. I mean, I, I think we could apply this to anything regarding assessment that the ideal version of it is unrealistic. Uh-huh. We're all constantly trying to find what is the compromise that's going to best serve me and the kids. Totally to do the thing. Yeah, it's 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 really challenging. How do you go about doing your assessment? Yeah, so um, I touched on a couple of these in the original overview, but um, we have some combination of recorded versus live assessments at this point. Anything that's recorded, we are giving them a ton of there are literal documents that show them pictures of how they should be framed in the video and videos without proper frame, framing will then need to be played for the either the class or the teacher, depending on the situation. We are also in a culture within our orchestra where seating and seating position does not necessarily directly reflect um, your exact stance in the ensemble. We have mixed seating, we switch seating a lot. So I think that helps a lot with this culture of not necessarily worrying so much about like, did I get a higher grade than the person who is sitting next to me? For high school, my current system of progress checks is that I'm, uh, because we are lucky to be co-teaching, we end up having one director continue to run rehearsal while we pull two stands at a time. That allows us to work um, uh, with them directly and the progress checks for them end up looking actually a little bit more like a small sectional. So we will play the phrase together and then we will also target anything specifically that that group needs to work on. Um, with a group of four to maybe up to six people, it makes it so much less pressure for them. And I think, like I said earlier, I'm trying to avoid that feeling of associating orchestra with dread. And I think that helps to allevi alleviate a lot of that. One other thing I didn't mention is that often if I'm doing a group progress check like that, or even a one-on-one -on -one progress check, I will have my instrument out 
sometimes the most helpful thing versus just like, hey, I need you to make that shift cleaner is just to play it for them. And I realize that comes from like a teacher fluency thing, but even even just playing it with them and helping them to identify, oh, here's a sound of what it could sound like is really useful. Sometimes if I have six people playing for me, I'll play that second violin part and realize, oh, actually, this is why they're struggling with that thing and that we'll work on it together. Ideally, in some world that happens before, but realistically, it's happening in person and you're discussing it in person. And I think that allows kids to have some kind of direct connection to what it should sound like just for that part. You can give them a reference recording, but that doesn't tell them how the viola line in measure 67 is supposed to sound. So I think that that is useful. One other thing that is always important to me is that I will follow up with any students individually and pull them during flex time or because of co-teaching during class for any one-on-one work. So while generally speaking, most of my high school players are at least third to fourth year players, we always have a couple that aren't. And so making sure that we get that extra one-on-one time that is great. Two other things I wanted to note um, for all of our things, uh, all of our rubrics rather, three is a passing grade, right? So getting that three out of four says that you have you have completed that target. That allows us also to give those fours to kids who are truly excelling and playing um, uh, at, at a at a different level. So an example is like, did you do the shift following all of the rules with your thumb moving and uh, uh, a clear sound overall? Yes. And then for the kid who's playing it super masterfully and like artistically using the shift to their advantage, that means that they would get that four out of four. So that also, it um, for me, this kind of rubric helps me teach to both ends in addition to the middle. So mm-hmm. like it, it lets me recognize, hey, I really appreciated that you did this. That same rubric concept applies for the ensemble skills we talked about at the top of the episode. They're like most kids are getting threes out of four on everything. If I saw a kid go out of their way to help their peer, I'm going to give them that four and it gives me that extra opportunity for a positive um, thing with them without necessarily having to be to, to say it to them right then. Like they'll see it on their on their thing. Not that saying it would be bad, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then my, my last thing is just progress checks are so stressful for students in lots of ways, even for students who are excelling at playing their instrument they are potentially stressed because suddenly everyone is judging them or even if they're not they feel like everyone's judging them so i think i have always tried to make my progress check days as fun as possible and try to make it as normal as possible right so like this is just part of what we do pat mentioned this earlier like this is just part of our school culture um our class culture so like for a middle school progress check test we would always our order was always alphabetical because i'm using this 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 um list that is alphabetical and Mm -hmm. again making it easier for myself i'm not skipping around to find other people so i can be efficient going down the list because of that we would switch who would start first right and so we would have a wheel on the board of everyone's names and we would spin it the first three people instead of playing first you get candy and then the fourth person is who gets to who gets to play first and we go alphabetical (laughs) for them but that person gets to choose do they want to go forward in the alphabet or backwards because i don't care i can go either way or we would do stupid things um like the kids would know to expect that the whoever would go first was always going to be decided in a silly way we had one where i put everyone's names on a post-it and i had a kid come stand in the front of the class and we stuck all the post-its on their shirt and then they flapped their arms and jumped up and down and whoever was the last posted to stand was gonna go first like we do it's all kinds of stupid stuff this part is not really about assessment and more about like meeting kids where they're at right the more silly and fun and not scary you can make the progress check the more that they can focus on oh hey this is about like making our group better and not about me um doing that do i recommend as a group as a teacher spending time writing every kid's name on a post-it to stick on a child not really did i do that yes absolutely <laughs> um yeah <laughs> 
I love that. Can I ask a quick question just about that rubric piece? Yeah, please do. Um, so for students that get a th like a three, so let's say you get a three on all your rubric categories, so your overall rubric grade is a three. Yep. What does that go into the grade book? At? I know that's a passing grade, but. Yeah, so great question. So you were modifying the percentages to um, reflect letter grades. And what we've done is re we've reflected the letter grades to, to um, uh, reflect our three out of four. Essentially a 75% is an A in our class. Okay, so 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 it still is an A. Does that make sense? And then so we so we 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 modified it the other way. And that's because the system is not designed for the standards-based grading we're doing. And we just made it that way. Um, it's not perfect. And it is also it took a very large cultural shift of making sure kids know not to um, look at the 75% and freak out. Do we get emails from parents that are new to our program? A thousand percent. And um, we actually, we like, we stayed in this purgatory between doing it or not doing it. Like four used to be an A, a, a completed grade for us, four of four. And then we switched to three, which is more aligned with standards-based grading practices. Yeah. And yeah, it was a cultural shift for our program for sure. And for kids that get get a four, is there a difference in their letter grade? For kids that get a four, um, no, they get an A still. And maybe in, in a case where a kid has like a ridiculously high grade, I give A pluses. I love an A plus. Like feel feel great about like this. Generally speaking, everyone gets an A in orchestra. <laughs> I can tell you, we I just submit my first semester grades. One kid out of all of my classes got an A minus. Yeah, I was just curious between that standard base three and four because I've heard lots of to achieve that four should be such a high standard that for students that are getting the three, if they feel like they're just not going to get to that four, like it can almost feel uh, frustrating for them to feel like I'm not going to totally agree. But I like that for you, the four is acknowledging and, and giving showing them that they have achieved at that level, but earning a three, th th there's no grade difference there ultimately for them, it sounds like. And I think that's a smart way of doing yes, it. Yes, I think that's the idea is that like, again, it's all about decentralizing the grade, right? Like, yes, there are some kids who are upset because they cannot get 100% in my class. And honestly, that's good for you. Like you <laughs> should take some time to consider why you care so much about that. And I say that having grown up as a Silicon Valley kid who went to a very similar high school to the one that I teach in, like I get it. I also understand why parents are concerned that their child won't get into Harvard because they got a lower percentage A in my class. And it's just not the point. And I think, I don't know, it's maybe it's my little pushback into this world as well. I think what I like is that there probably was a time in this country and maybe there are different places where like getting a three on that, you know, which is showing that you're meeting expectations was a B or a C. And that was like, yeah, you're average. And in this world, I think most people are like, well, if I'm meeting those things, I should be getting an A. And I like that your system is is still, they're still earning an A by meeting those things. And I haven't, I haven't talked about the specific wording within our rubrics. In our 4321, there's actually a description for each number. So most of the fours are, I always play the bones in the, in the music accurately. I always play the rhythms. Most of the threes are I almost always. Yep. And I think that the goal of that is to be like, hey, as a musician, we're trying to be as realistic as possible. You're not always going to make that shift super musically, but if you are almost always doing it and understanding and demonstrating that, then that means that you are meeting that standard. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what, that's where we are at. It's taken a long time for us to get to that point. I do also want to say that these um, strings learning targets, if you have listened to this point in this episode, um, feel free to send us an email. I'm happy to share this document with anyone. I, I think it's, it's been worked on by, by multiple people in our district. And the current version that I'm using is my adapted 
uh, version of our full district learning targets that we've been, it's been a, like literally 10 year project, but we, I'm happy to share those with anyone. And it's maybe easier than hearing me talk about it to actually look at the rubrics. Very, very cool. Okay. So we've, we've talked about the, what we're assessing and how we go about assessing it. But as we've discussed, the value of all these assessments is the feedback part of actually assessing the kids and then sharing with them what you're hearing so that they can know what they're doing well and what they need to improve. You've talked a little bit about this, but how do you go about providing that feedback? The idea is that everyone is getting written feedback for their playing test. It's not verbal. I'm not saying right in the spot, like, hey, you need to fix this in front of everyone or um, recording it back to them. I am I am giving them written feedback. Sometimes um, there is an audio comment option within Schoology. So sometimes if they need to hear something, I will either speak it or play it back at them so that they can use that as a reference point. That's usually a more specific situation. Mostly I am giving that feedback by writing it in their rubric comments for each category. So even within technical skills, um, within posture and position, tone, pitch accuracy, I can click into the, the pitch accuracy number and then say, hey, I just want to flag that in bar 47, you were playing a B flat, but it actually is a B. And that that um, they know to look in that. There's also an overall comment box that we can use as well. Um, and again, like I was saying earlier, I require, especially my younger students, to go through and actually tell me what the feedback I told them was. You've really got to close that loop. All of this is in the idea of giving kids as much written feedback as possible. One more note in terms of um, making things easier for you. If I have a playing test where I know I'm going to talk a lot about like, ooh, make sure that you retake all the way back to the frog, I will keep a list of canned comments for that specific test. And I do copy paste a lot. I honestly also have keyboard shortcuts where like if I, I generally know like, hey, um, double check that your both feet are flat on the ground. Like I have that as saved as a shortcut and then I will I will use that to be able to provide robust feedback in a short amount of time. And again, this is a total like advantage of like, I'm able to sit at the front of the room with my laptop and type meaningful comments in the time that they're able to do so. That's not the case for everyone. So it's just where I'm at. I think it's very impressive that you're able to provide, yeah, that level of robust feedback written out for them. And I, it sounds like you've got some good systems there combined with like some very impressive typing skills. I, <laughs> I, I think I would very much struggle to do that well. I, I think for a variety of reasons. One of them, I, I, th I like that you kind of have like these default comments to provide to them. Um, and and when you need to, you're more specific. I think I've found in the past when I have done that for me, I either write too much. I think I found that I, I took a long time to write what I was writing. And oftentimes it was it was notes for me to support the rubric but were not always framed in a way that was like student friendly mm -hmm. because there were critical comments and I wrote them critically. And I think I could probably just reframe those and try and be typing things that are more like for the student to read rather than for me to read. But I, I hadn't find a great system for that. So um, I, I don't provide honestly written feedback to my students that's typed out. The only feedback I provide is, did they meet the criterion that were there? Because I want them to know if they didn't get 100%, what did they miss? For um, sure, yeah. So that they know what, what they need to do again. I guess the first thing I would say is, because I'm doing these assessments in class, the grades are all entered there. And all I have to do is just transfer the grades from my spreadsheet into Q, our gradebook system. I do that the same day. So the kids are able to get their grade the same day. And that was yeah. the thing that I've really liked compared to the past, because I, in the past, if I was grading things at 
the grade might not be entered for a week if it was a, a recording or even on individual assessments, I might not transfer those grades to the grade book for another day or two. It just feels detached from what they were doing. I use Autocrat, which is a mm -hmm. Google spreadsheet, uh, Google sheet add-on um, to do the mail merging of that criterion into a Google doc. So I, I, it does kind of like create similar to, it sounds like what you used to do. Um, it creates like a nice form that shows here's what the criterion were for your task. And it shows that they did or didn't meet that based on the boxes that I checked on the spreadsheet. And that gets emailed out to the students. Anybody who gets a zero on those that doesn't get meet masteries. So that means that they didn't meet any criterion or they only met one out of three. I, I pull them into flex. You mentioned that you have flex as well. We have flex twice a week. It's a 35 or 40 minute period of time um, that happens on a Tuesday or Thursday. The kids can sign up for classes or you can pull them in. So that's what I do. And that is my way of using the assessment as an opportunity to just engage with the kid that needs help and to intervene. Yeah. The biggest takeaway for me about what I like about this assessment model I'm using right now is that the kids that were falling through the cracks before get found and I have an opportunity to help them. Every single kid who that I meet with gets a better grade because kind of what you shared with those like pull-ins, you get this opportunity to do a little mini lesson with the students specific to the thing. Yeah. And usually if the kid gets a zero, it's because they just didn't understand something as clearly as I thought they, they would have in our class. And there's a light bulb that goes off for them and then they're able to do the thing. And that wouldn't have happened without that intervention. So I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited that assessment has provided that opportunity for us this year. For sure. I wanted to also just flag that like the way that you and I do assessment is what's working for us. And that mm -hmm. I think it would be very reasonable that a listener would not feel like they could type all their notes authentically within that time or not know how to use AutoCAD to mail merge. And I think the general concepts of what we are both saying is making sure that we are getting feedback that is specific more than a number to students and to also look at ways that it can be easier for the teacher. Mm -hmm. Like all of these systems that we've developed are so that we are not spending a weekend with five minutes per test over 200 tests. And that's, it's not a great use of your time. And it's not a great use of, of student work either. So I think those are kind of our main takeaways. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I, I think what I would add to that is if you're asking yourself, how can I be doing things better or differently? You don't have to do what we're doing. Again, we're, ours are specific to us, but just think, how does my class already run? And how can I create an assessment model that just supports what's already happening? That, that the yeah, assessment doesn't that. have to be so detached from the instruction. It should, in fact, just be checking in on the instruction that's happening to see how our students are doing. Totally. This was super helpful. And I think, as you've already acknowledged, we do things differently. I, I In hearing what you're doing, I have like all of these ideas that I think I might. Oh, and I learned from you too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's there's, there's value in us sharing some things we can take from one another and also just discussing how we do things differently. Totally. Let's move to our last segment, which is our opportunity to share our goals. We share a goal each episode. We'll check in on our goal from last episode, and then we'll set a new one. Do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. Um, my last goal, I think the last episode we, we recorded was just before Thanksgiving break or maybe during Thanksgiving break. Um, and so my goal then, I was trying to enjoy time with family and really try to ramp up to make sure we were ready for Midwest. I feel like I did both of those things. 
Uh, <laughs> and then we had winter break. I did get to spend some time with family and and sort of decompress after a nine month process of of a lot of work. And we are now sort of looking at 2023 and I'm looking at this being like, wow, my goal is to work some normal hours like a normal person who gets paid a normal salary to do normal tasks. <laughs> I would like to work a lot less. I used to teach and then stay until five, six, seven to make sure I got all of my things done. I would like to leave work at a normal hour that is reasonable. And my sub goal, which is probably contradictory to what I just said, is I'm super excited about Orchestra Olympics. That is a section versus section <laughs> um, competition that helps to really energize our January and February timeframe. It's not lost on me that it is also when course signups start to happen. So it's, it's, I've always, it started organically in my second year of teaching just as like a, how do I make this time of year that is a slog better? It has evolved into a thing that students literally cheer for. Like even my most despondent high school kids who are way too detached, they friggin' live for Orchestra Olympics. It has um, um, competitions that run the gamut from like a scale competition to a rhythm thing to like entirely unrelated competitions that are directly stolen from the British TV show Taskmaster, if you're familiar. Um, but the it, it's very complicated. And then the, the end day uh, ends with a spirit dress up day. Um, and an orchestra talent show, and there's an official prize winning. It's it's a very dramatic. It takes the course of like uh, six weeks, and I'm excited to plan for it to make it the best one yet in 2023. <laughs> wow, I uh, am I I want to uh, attend and participate in your orchestra Olympics. They sound super super fun. Um, that sounds awesome. I also want for you uh, all of the normal things that <laughs> you yeah. expressed there. I'm going to try to go home and I'm going to try to cook dinner and spend time with my husband and cats. <laughs> um, my old goal from our episode back before our December concerts was about our December concerts and specifically behavior at the concerts for the students when they weren't performing. My kids sit on the side of the gym up in the bleachers and watch the other students as they perform. and. They are largely unsupervised. I mean, they, there are some teachers that are around. But it's a lot of kids in a big room, and it's it's hard for teachers to take action in a performance uh, venue like that. So we had a lot of conversations. Well, we had a few really, really um, direct conversations before the concert that talked about, like, what do you want from an audience when you're performing? And then on the other side of that, as an audience member, how can you maximize your experience as an audience member? How can you get the most out of this concert as possible? And all of the ways that we can do that in respecting the musicians that are there. And of course, all of the behaviors that we would want and would not want to see happen there. I thought that was helpful to lay the groundwork. Interestingly, at the concert, at the orchestra concert, which was first, the first night, I do orchestra and then I do band, the kids were okay, but just the general room felt really rumbly. And it, hmm. the parents were excited to be there, but it definitely felt a, a, like a more casual than I wanted it to. And I think a lot of that energy honestly came from the audience, not the students. Some of the students even made comments of like, it, it felt different than I than I thought um, than I thought it would. You know, some of that is like, you know, these these parents who love their kids so much want to get a photograph and a video and they're all moving around. It just felt a little it just felt a little bit like for sure this was not totally what i imagined um in terms of the feeling of the being in the gym doesn't help with that certainly oh totally yeah. you know natalie came to one of my concerts and and my wife and she was saying the same thing of like you can only dress up a gym so much like it, it is it is a gymnasium and that comes with a certain energy there 
So it wasn't that people were disrespectful at all, yeah. um, but it definitely felt like there was just kind of an energy that level in the room. The kids, I would say, matched that energy. Not that they were they were totally uh, off, but they kind of matched that. All that to say, the next night I had the band concert, which is there, there are more students in the band program and many more parents that attend that concert. And I was kind of thinking, okay, this is if the orchestra concert was like this, the band concerts can be a lot more. So what I did at the beginning of the concert is I just took a moment and I and I did it in a way that was like we're excited to be here together and a lot of us haven't attended many of these types of events in a while we just want to remind everybody what it's like to be at a live formal concert like this and talked about just some expectations honestly with with the audience members and the kids got to hear that and it made a huge impact and I and I, I thought that the way I laid it out for them was in a way that felt not like I was slapping at people on the hand before something even happened. It was more just a like, here's a general reminder to our students and also parents for you of what is expected at a formal concert like this. And I thought when I was explicit like that, it really made a huge difference. And I was I was thrilled with how that went. And that might be a thing that I do at definitely the December concert every single year, just to remind everybody what it's like to go to one of those things. I walked away feeling like, okay, this was this was good progress. Yeah. For sure. My new goal, which I have actually already kind of done a little bit of, is I walked away from the first semester with just some like some mess that I needed to get cleaned up. Our instrument storage room and our music music library and kind of the state of that had gotten a little away from me. So I actually took some time. We had a work day. We got back to do a lot of that cleanup. But the other thing I wanted to do, which I didn't get to do, is I want to reorient my room and just change things so that I can move about the room a little bit more smoothly. And I intended to do that on our workday and ran out of time. So I'm hoping to get that done in the next couple of weeks just to change things up and see if that works differently and, and maybe in a better way. That actually, I feel like is a great response to the January slog also when kids come in and their room is reoriented, then that like re-energizes the room in so many ways. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you so much for listening. On our next episode, we will discuss tuning in our classes, and that will include how we tune at different grade levels in class, as well as how we teach our students to tune themselves both in class and at home. If you want to reach out to us with questions, comments, feedback, or ideas, shoot us an email at bandmeetsstrings at gmail.com. And of course, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at bandmeetsstrings. If you want to stay up to date on new episodes as they're released, please subscribe on whatever platform you use to play podcasts and consider spreading the word to anyone you think might be interested. We're hoping to spread this network of shared learning as wide as we can in the string education community. That's all for us. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you.